I've tried to record this intro, I don't know how many times at this point, because this episode is something special, I think. When I booked Terry as a guest, I saw his bio and he was, I saw he's a load of things and I saw a SWAT team hostage negotiator and I thought, oh my God, that's going to be so cool. I can use that to beef up my podcast, to be like, look at this amazing, intense guest. And I'll, I will do some over-the-top promo uh, for this. What I wasn't expecting was an honest and frank journey through the struggles of cancer. And I wasn't expecting my entire mindset to almost be challenged is the wrong word but almost encouraged to be better i hope that this episode has a similar impact for you put aside an hour right now and just listen to this and enjoy all the lessons that terry tucker has to offer Hi everyone, this is JJ, the co-founder of Good Pods. If you haven't heard of it yet, Good Pods is like Goodreads or Instagram, but for podcasts. It's new, it's social, it's different, and it's growing really fast. There are more than 2 million podcasts, and we know that it is impossible to figure out what to listen to. On Good Pods, you follow your friends and podcasters to see what they like. That is the number one way to discover new shows and episodes. You can find Good Pods on the web or download the app. Happy listening. Terry, the warmest welcome to the show. From, from reading all of those roles um, and getting lost in that list, I, I take it you can't sit still for two seconds. Well, Tom, first, thanks for having me on the show. I'm really looking forward to talking with you today. Um, yeah, I mean, I've sort of had to move around. You know, there were things that, that interested me, but there were also, you know, family obligations. My wife has always been the primary breadwinner. So if, if she lost her job where we were living and, you know, needed to find one in another state here in the U.S., then we had to move. And then I had to find something else to do. I, I always felt very fortunate that I never was one of those people that was like, well, this is what I am and this is all I can do. And you know, you kind of silo or pigeonhole yourself that, you know, I, I can't do anything else. It was always like, well, you know, I've got education, I've got experience, I've got things that, that interest me. So why not try this? You know, it may not have been my ideal job, but it was something that I could go, I could do, I could contribute, uh, I could make some money, you know, to support the family and, you know, support my wife at the same time. Because as I said, you know, she was always the primary breadwinner. So we kind of went where she got a job and, and it's been fun. You know, we, we just sent out uh, a bunch of Christmas cards. And I, I don't want to date the show by any means, but I mean, we probably send out 110 to 150 Christmas cards because we've lived so many places and we've mm -hmm. developed friendships and things like that, that we want to stay in touch with these people and things like that. So it, it's kind of, it's kind of fun in a way. Plus uh, it, it kind of helps us declutter the house. It's like, you know, let's throw that out. Let's throw that out. We got to move. So you know, we get rid of a bunch of stuff. So it's been a great experience. 
I, I am not that organized when it comes to Christmas. Um, I've even started, and um, yeah, we we do film these a little bit in advance, and I have we we've got a few days left, and I still haven't uh, done my shopping. Anyway, uh, less about me. I I take it from that. Then your wife is a big source of energy for you. She's incredibly supportive. I mean, when she um, married me, I was a suit and tie sort of eight to five Monday through Friday hospital administrator. And we were living in California at the time, and I saw a circular, an advertisement that came in the mail that said, if you take this class, you can apply to be a reserve police officer with any agency within the state of California. And so, you know, you can imagine how that conversation went that night at dinner. It's like, uh, hey, hon, um, I, I kind of like to do this. And, uh, you know, if I if I enjoy it, you know, who knows where it's going to lead. And she was incredibly supportive. It's like, you know what, if that mm-hmm. interests you, go ahead and do it. I did take the class. I did get on with the Santa Barbara Police Department. And then our daughter was born and we moved to another state. And I, I, I said to my wife, I'm like, look, I, I love this. This is a passion for me. I want to do it full time. I want to go through the police academy and, you know, it's like, hey, I want to work nights and I want to miss birthdays and holidays and all that kind of stuff. You good with that? And, uh, you know, she was, like I said, incredibly supportive. So I've been very lucky to have somebody that supported me. And at the same time, I try to support her and what she does. Mm-hmm. Um, so just to let me understand sort of like the context of uh, Santa Barbara is very different from you're in Chicago now. My, I'm actually in Denver, Colorado now. Oh, wow. You are. OK, so my knowledge of American geography is horrendous. Uh, <laughs> um, but like, so what was it when you were going through those classes and going through those lessons? What was it that really appealed to you that y- you made that decision? Yes, I want to be a police officer. So my grandfather was a Chicago police officer and Chicago is, is probably the third largest city in the United States. He was a Chicago police officer from 1924 to 1954 um, and was actually shot in the line of duty with his own gun. It was not a serious injury. He was shot in the ankle, taking a, a homicide suspect back to the lockup. And when I expressed an interest in going into that line of work, my dad was like, absolutely not. He remembered the stories that my grandmother used to tell. My dad was an infant at the time. My grandfather was shot in 1933. But he, he remembered the stories my grandmother told his mom of that knock on the door of, you know, Mrs. Tucker, grab your son, your husband's been shot, come with us. And so when I expressed that interest in, you know, I'd really like to do that. Absolutely not. You're going to go to college. You're going to major in business. You're going to get mm-hmm. out, get a great job, get married, have 2.4 kids and live happily ever after. But that's what my dad wanted me to do. That's not what I felt my purpose yeah. or my passion was. So. When I graduated from college, my dad was dying of cancer. So that was really the first big dilemma in my life. I could say, sorry, dad, I'm going to go blaze my own trail and go into law enforcement or out of love and respect for you, I will do what you want me to do. So if you look at my resume now, my first two jobs were in business. That was because of my dad. I sort of joke, I did what every good son did. I waited till my father passed away and then I followed my own dreams. And so that was... You know, that was the impetus behind it. My grandfather and, and his experiences. I have two great big scrapbooks 
of all the newspaper articles and correspondence and police reports and mug shots and all that that he collected over his career. And it's always been fascinating for me. You know, it's kind of interesting to sort of see we've almost got a parallel here with our own fathers because mine was kind of similar but opposite because mine really wanted me to go into the army just like he did. And it's just something that I was like, I know it's not for me. It's something you know intrinsically inside, like every fiber of your being says, this isn't where I'm meant to be. And I feel like for you, you had that same when you decided you want to become a police officer, you had that sort of thing where every fiber of your being was saying, yes, this is right for me. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think I think a lot of people are faced with that kind of a situation, you know, where they're, you know, and, and I know why my father did that. You know, my father was like, look, I want something better for you. I want you to get an education. I want you to do... And, and I get that. And, and and I he did what he did out of love for me, not because, you know, he was trying to control me or anything like that. But I think a lot of people face in their lives where, you know, their, their primary caregivers, whether it's their parents or maybe an uncle or a sibling that's like, you should do this, you should do yeah. this, you should. And, and you don't want to disappoint those people. But at the same time, you've got your own path to, to, yeah. to go. You've got your own life to live. And I think a lot of people sort of, you know, if they're not strong enough, if they're not confident enough, they're like, oh, okay, that's what my my parents want me to do. Or that's what my, you know, my dad's a lawyer and he wants me to be a lawyer or, or whatever. And you're like, I don't really want to be a lawyer. That That's not, that's not for me. And I would certainly encourage people. And I always tell young people when I, when I speak to groups of young people that if there's something in your heart, something in your soul that you believe you're supposed to do but it scares you, go ahead and do it. Yeah. Because at the end of your life, the things you're going to regret are not going to be the things you did. They're going to be the things you didn't do, but then it's going to be too late to go back and do them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's expand on that because you read my mind. That was literally my next question. Because um, I know in another podcast as well, you mentioned doing the thing that scares you. So can we expand on that a little bit further? Sort of talk about maybe different contexts or how we could use it. Yeah, you, you know, fear is there, there's a, a great book out by a man by the name of Gavin De Becker called The Gift of Fear. And, you know, we, we don't like to be afraid. We don't like, well, I guess some people do, but most people don't like to be afraid. And, you know, I, I remember back when I was a police officer, I, I worked with a partner, uh, a woman who I was in the police academy with, uh, and, and we were partners for a number of years. And, you know, even if we were being dispatched to say a noise run, you know, where a neighbor called and said, Hey, could you go over to my neighbors and tell them, you know, to turn the television down or something like that? If one of us was like, Oh, wait a minute, I got a bad feeling about this run, even though it's something innocuous, like, you know, Hey, knock on the door. Could you turn your TV down, please? Thank you very much. Have a nice day. Goodbye. You know, and, and we're gone. We always said, you know, if that, if the hair on the back of our neck goes up, if we get that kind of feeling in the pit of our stomach, that we're going to pay attention to that, that we're not just going to discard it because the run is something that's not dangerous. You know, it's not somebody with a gun or, you know, somebody that's been stabbed or something like that. We're going to pay attention to that fear because it's been given to us for a reason. So I, I, I think it's, it's really important not to just dismiss that. But on the other hand, the only way we grow, the only way we get better, the only way 
that we can improve ourselves is if we step outside our comfort zones and do things that make us nervous, uncomfortable. I try to do this every day, and I'll certainly recommend it to your audience. Do one thing each day that makes you nervous, that scares you, that's uncomfortable, that's potentially embarrassing. It doesn't have to be a big thing, but if you do those small things every day, when the big disasters in life hit us, and they hit us all, you know, we somebody close to us dies, we lose our job, we find out we have a chronic or a terminal illness, you'll be so much more resilient to handle those things than the people who just kind of sit back and like, hey, things are good. I like my comfort zone. I'm not going to get out of it. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, I'm really glad you mentioned that because I, I did my degree in psychology and that was one of the things that was mentioned in the counseling sessions. And something that I've learned to sort of develop, because I, I suffer from anxiety, which isn't fun, as you can imagine. Fear is a great partner and can be a great partner. Like you said, it's the hairs on the back of your neck. It's what keeps you safe. It's what prevents you from harm. But fear can also be a little bit too overzealous. It can almost get in your way and prevent you from doing the things that you find you're going to love. Yeah, I mean, if you're, you know, anything that's new to us, you know, there's a certain amount of anxiety or apprehension. You know, it's like, I don't, I don't know. I, I you know, and, and I know, I, I wrote a book in 2020 based on 10 principles. And one of the principles that I put in that book, and the one that resonates most with me, and I'm not proud to say it, it does, because I've done this probably more times than I care to admit in my life, is this. Most people think with their fears and their insecurities instead of using their minds. You know, I, I know I've been in situations where it's like, you know, I'd like to do this, but wait a minute, maybe I'm not smart enough, or maybe I don't have enough knowledge or information, or what are people going to say about me if I fail? That's thinking with our fears mm -hmm. and our insecurities. That's not thinking with our minds. That's mm -hmm. not thinking with, hey, you know, yeah, I, I try this N Nelson Mandela, the former president of South Africa, used to say that, you know, I never lose. I either learn or I win. So as long as you do something, even if you fail at it and you learn something, it's still a good process for you. You've grown in doing that thing. And who cares what people say about you? You're living your life. And, and I've seen this, and, and maybe you have too, Tom. I've seen this, you know, where people are like, well, you know, Tom's got this and I don't have that. So, you know, I, I, I should be like Tom or I should be like Mary or I should be like, no, you, you should be like you. you you're yeah. living your journey with your unique gifts and talents. Mm -hmm. And why are we comparing our lives to other people and then being upset when we don't have what they have? Why can't we just be gracious mm -hmm. and say, hey, I'm glad you're doing well. Congratulations. You're on your path. I'm on my path. I'll get to where I need to be, maybe not as quickly as you. But that's okay. We don't all need to be sort of keeping up with the Joneses is what we used to call it here in the United yeah. States. Yeah. Um, same phrase over here for the UK as well. Um, so my question to you with that in mind is how do you develop that mindset? Yeah, you, you've, you've got to get outside your comfort zones. And like I said, I think the first way to start is to do small things every day that make you uncomfortable. You know, like I say, I, they don't have to be big things. You know, if you do one thing. I hate going to the dentist. You know, the other day I picked up the phone and, you know, made my six-month appointment for my, my dental cleaning. That was uncomfortable for me. It mm -hmm. wasn't huge. It wasn't like a major life issue, but it was something uncomfortable. 
when I, uh, you mentioned I have, a, I have cancer, I, I had my leg amputated in 2020. When I work with my prosthetic, it's like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm tired right now. I really don't feel like doing it. You know, you make you, yourself do things that you don't want to do. You make yourself do things that are uncomfortable or that push you. And if you do those, all of a sudden now, you realize you're you're capable of so much more than you ever thought you were. I mean, I I've often believed we all have a breaking, you know, wh- mm-hmm. whatever that is in our life. But that breaking point is so much further down the road than we ever give ourselves credit for. Mm-hmm. And, and and here's the last thing I'll say about this: the world owes you nothing, and nothing's nobody's coming to your aid. Nobody's going to you know be there to bail you out. You've got to take personal responsibility for your own success and mm-hmm. happiness. And so mm-hmm. many people don't do that. At least here in the United States, you know, people start down the road toward a goal and then they'll butt up against an impediment. Something will get in their way and they can't get over it or around it or through it. And so they'll quit. But we just don't quit here in the United States. We got to blame somebody. You yeah. know, we, we don't take personal responsibility. We got to blame our parents or our mm-hmm. boss or our station in life. Very few people take personal responsibility for their own success and happiness. Yep. So start there. Start with, you know what? I'm going to be responsible for my success and happiness. Nobody else. I'm going to be the one who's going to do that. And then you'll start to say, well, I want to do this, but it scares me. Well, yep. you know what? You're the only one who can overcome that. And, and that's it. That's all in your mind. It starts in your mind. So be able to control your mind. No, I'm in total agreement there as well with you. Um, I found the best things are just beyond that little bit of uncomfortableness, that little bit of kind of apprehension. And more often than not, I found that the apprehension is much worse than the event itself. And you mentioned calling the dentist. And you know what? I actually have to do that too. Uh, (laughs) Make yourself a note there. (laughs) I don't want to. But you know what? I've I've got to do that as well. And you also talked there about uh, taking personal responsibility, especially when you come up against a hurdle. And this reminds me of a stat I keep seeing around in the podcasting world. And you might have seen it too. It's the one that goes 80% of podcasts fail after three episodes. They go into pod fade. And then the 80% that's remaining of that go into pod fade after episode 21. Uh, this is now episode 23. We've sort of got past that. But it is so easy, isn't it, just to almost give up and you have to actively and consciously go, no, I'm not going to. Yeah. It's hard work to do a podcast, which is the reason why I enjoy being a guest and not have my own podcast. You know, <laughs> it is hard work to do what you do, and you figured that out. And, you know, I, I've been on podcasts where I've had pre-calls with people and mm-hmm. things like that, and then, or, or not actually podcasts, but I've had pre-calls with people, and we set a time and a date, and that date comes around, and, and they're, they ghost me. You know, they're yeah. gone. And it's yeah. like, you know... I thought we had an agreement that we were going to meet at this time. And, you know, and, and it's, and I'm sure it's because, man, this is really hard. You know, I've got to put in time. I've got to, you know, if I'm going to release an episode a week, if I want to be somebody that people listen to, I've got to be consistent. But that's true of anything you do in your life. If you want to be good at it, you have to be consistent. You yeah. have to get up yeah. every day and, and do things again that make you uncomfortable. But a lot of people are like, Oh man. 
I'm comfortable under the covers. It's cold outside. Yeah. You know, it's dark. I, I, I'm just going to stay here. And, but that's the difference between winners and losers. There's a, and, and again, this is American football. I understand it's not, you know, football in your country and football <laughs> in my country are two different things. But there was a, a, a wide receiver on the San Francisco 49er football team here in the United States that used to say, today I will do what others won't. Mm-hmm. So that tomorrow I can do what others can't. Yeah. So think about that. Think about, you know what, you're going to get out of bed. You're going to do what you need to do to, to move your career or, you know, your body. If you're doing physical stuff, whatever it is along. Whereas those up, let those other people stay in bed. Let those other people get under the covers. You mm-hmm. do the hard and difficult things that will get you to the point where you can do the things tomorrow that other people can't. Yeah. What's the name of that footballer? Uh, Jerry Rice. Jerry Rice. Is that with a J? There we are. Yes. J-E-R-R-Y-R-I-C-E. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. And I'm really glad you mentioned consistency there because I honestly swear that is like a secret weapon, a secret ingredient to a lot of success. It's just having the consistency, waking up in the morning. I know we talked previously about how I'm not a morning person, but still going to wake up in the morning. Hate it. Uh, <laughs> waking up in the morning doing what you need to do on a consistent basis. For me, it's releasing the episode every Tuesday at seven o'clock in the morning. I hate the mornings. Still hate the mornings. Um, But also, I'm a big fan of Formula One, and I don't know how big of a cultural thing it is over there for for you guys in the States. And one of the big things that the champions, Lewis Hamilton, Max Verstappen, Lando Norris, who will be a champion one day, George Russell, who will be a champion one day, they all say is consistency is key. It is. It, it, it's absolutely key. And if you, and if you think about, there, there's, a, there's an entrepreneur here in the United States by the name of Ed Milet. And he talks about the four types of people in the world. He said the first type is the unmotivated. Mm-hmm. And he said that's the vast majority of people in the world. So think about that. Think about this from your, your perspective. You know, if most of the people you run across are unmotivated, you're that much further down the, down the road to being a champion. Then the next group are the motivated people. And, and that's pretty, pretty basic, sort of a, a carrot and a stick thing. You know, if I do this, then I will obtain that. And then the next group are the inspirational people. Inspiration being in spirit. And, and so you move people with your energy. Mm-hmm. And then the last group are the aspirational people where they're, they're people who want to aspire to be like you. And I, yeah. I think consistency, I think leadership, those are things that are pretty much caught as opposed to being taught. You know, if yeah. I taught you how to be a leader, if I taught you how to be consistent, that's one thing. But if you see me like, you, you know, those Formula One athletes if you see me doing these things, now you've learned how to be consistent. You've learned how to keep going and moving forward based on what you're seeing, not like something you read out of a book or this is something you did. Oh, I, you know, I admire that person as, a, as an athlete, as a business person, as an entrepreneur or whatever. What are they doing that I can do so that I can be like that, so that I can be aspirational mm. and not be one of those unmotivated people in the world? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, totally, totally agree. 
Um, let's sort of move on now to sort of let's let's really talk about your time in your in the police. And we're in the moment we'll also talk about your time as a uh, I believe hostage negotiator. Is that correct? Correct. Um, so before we jump into the jump into into that part, am I right in understanding that the name of your 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 um, your company, Motivational Check, that came from your time in the police? It, it did. Uh, when I was in the police academy and. Uh, most police academies are around six months. It's like going to school every day. You learn about laws. You learn about, you know, how to use all the tools on your belt. You lose, use how to defend yourself, you know, hand to hand, all that kind of stuff. So it's like going to school every day. And when we had a defensive tactics instructor that gave us that phrase, motivational check, so that when we were doing physical things and we did some pretty hard things in the academy, we ran a marathon and, you know, a lot of push-ups and sit-ups. I remember he, he ran us one day to this office building and it had this huge fountain in the middle of it. And, you know, there was water shooting out, but there were about, you know, four inches of water in the bottom of this fountain. And we all got in the fountain and we did push-ups in the fountain. So, you know, you're going down into the water, you know, with your face and stuff like that. And so motivational check was a phrase that any of us could yell out at any time just to basically say, hey, you know what? I, I'm having a tough day today. Th this is difficult for me. I need some hope. I need some inspiration. I need some motivation. And the rest of the class would respond with an 84. We were the 84th recruit class. So we would just yell out 84 to let that person know that, hey, yeah, I know you're hurting, but we're going to get through this together. This is an individual thing. We're here as a class. Mm -hmm. We're here as a team. So when I was looking for a name for my blog, motivational check just seemed to keep coming up in my mind. And I thought, you know what? I, people don't understand the backstory. When they do, it makes a lot more sense. But to me, it was absolutely the right, the right name at the right time. Mm. And, you know, that's kind of really interesting how I've, I've got, I've got a big interest in communication, how that's just a shorthand to complex to, to a big about That's just a shorthand to, Tell your fellow squad mates that you are struggling and to communicate something really complex in two words. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, it, you know, when you yell something out, you you engage, you know, you engage your mind, obviously, but you also engage your, your body. You know, you, you get a little dump of adrenaline by yelling something. You know, there's mm -hmm. a force behind it. And so all of a sudden, you know, now it's like, oh, uh, you know, I'm kind of failing. Now it's more of a just, a, you know, sort of a shot, like, okay, boom, you know, I've got a little bit more energy now, just by the fact that you do that. And then when the class responds with, you know, hey, we're all here together, we're all hurting, but we'll all get through this as a group. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I think there's also something powerful about knowing you've got the team has your back. Um, so obviously, you have worked as part of loads of different teams but i think the biggest highlight would be the swat team that you've um worked with so before we jump into that properly what are any specifics that i might need to understand before we really talk about this so for for those who don't understand the swat team you know it, it, they always kind of say when the public needs help they call 911 when the police need help they call swat you know th these are usually the 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 best trained, the, the best officers with the best equipment. 
And so I've always wanted to be part of that, part of the best. If I was going to do something, mm-hmm. wanted to be you know on the best team with the best people or in the best company and things like that. So when there was an opening on the negotiating team, I guess let me back up for a second. SWAT is divided usually into two groups. Mm-hmm. One is the, the tactical team, the tactical officers, and those are the officers with all the toys, you know, the, the big guns, the armored car and the, the ballistic shields and all that stuff. And then there's the negotiators. And the negotiators, if we do our job, then the tactical team doesn't get to use all their toys. So sometimes they're not happy with us when, you know, we do our job and things like that. But, but our job is to engage with the individual who's either barricaded themselves or is, you know, barricaded with a, a hostage and to try to get them both or individually out safely. That's, that's our job. And, and we'll take as long as it, as it takes. I mean, if it takes two hours, if it takes eight hours, we will not leave until we either get the person out or the situation ends in a more violent kind of way, which about 10% of the time it does. But 90% of the time, we're just successful at what we do. And we can, we can go into how that, that's done. I'm sure you've got some questions about that as well. Yeah. Um, and I think the best way to start with this is, would you be able to walk me through how one might negotiate in a hostage situation? I'll let the variable, you can choose the variables um, to make it work for yourself. I've got a goal in mind for this podcast. Currently, we are on the Good Pods Top 100 Indie Documentary Chart, and we're currently chilling at number 33, which is a really awesome place to be. And you've helped us get there, so thank you so much for that. But I wonder, can we break 30 in the next week or so? That would be absolutely awesome. If you could jump over to Good Pods, leave a rating and a review, and that will really, really help this show grow. Would you be able to walk me through how one might negotiate in a hostage situation? I'll let the variable, you can choose the variables um, to make it work for yourself. I, I'll give you a couple of stories um, and, and then sort of tell you the, the, the training, the science, because there is science. We worked with the psychologist, you mm-hmm. know, and, and the way we trained was pretty simple. We would do scenario based training. So we would, you know, okay, let's come up with a scenario. You play the hostage negotiator, you play the hostage taker, you play the bag, whatever. And then we would go through a drill. And then we, the, the big part where the learning came is in the, is in the debrief, where mm-hmm. we would all get together with the psychologist and that and be like, you know, okay, you talked about this. And we would record our, our trainings. It was like, you know, you said this here. What'd you think about that? You know, maybe you could have said it this way. Or did you think maybe this individual could have possibly had schizophrenia and they were off their medication. And so there was, you know, we were always, you know, and and that was a good thing about the group. We were trying to make each other better. You know, there was no, oh, hey, you said this and that was wrong. No, it was like, hey, what were you thinking when you said that? Okay, have you thought about maybe saying it this way? Oh, no, I never thought about it. So it wasn't like, you know, oh, you were wrong and I'm, I'm trying to front you out. It was more, how do we get better as a team? So I'll give you two stories. This first one is just a funny story and it's totally atypical, not the way it usually worked. But there was a a man who had barricaded himself in his house with a gun and his wife. And I happened to be working that night. I was in a marked car in uniform 
So I was able to get to the scene fairly quickly. I, I talked to the uniform officers on scene. I'm like, what's the deal? Like, he's drunk. He's barricaded himself in his house with a gun and his wife, and he won't come out. Okay. So do you have him on the phone? Yes, we do. All right, let me talk. So I took over the negotiation and I started talking to him. And usually you never ask the person to come out early in the negotiation. That's usually hours down. And, and I'll talk about the why in a minute. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I got him on the phone. We're talking for about five minutes. And, and I just had a feeling. I just had a gut feeling. And I said to him, what would it take for you to come out? And it got real quiet for a minute. And, and then he said, and this is where it gets funny. He said, give me a beer. I was like, if I gave you a beer, do I have your word? You would let your wife go and you would come out. He said, do I have your word? I could drink it. I said, you have my word. You could drink it. He said, well, then I'll come out. So I gave $5 to the officer, one of the officers. I said, get out of the store and buy a beer. The tactical team put it on the front porch of his house. I called them back and I said, your beer's on the front porch, but you don't get it until your wife comes out. You come out with your hands up. He's like, all right, but I want to make sure that you agree that I can drink that beer. I said, absolutely, you can drink that beer. All of a sudden, the front door flies open. Here comes his wife. Here he comes with his hands up. We handcuff him, let him drink his beer, and off to jail he went. So, I mean, it was it was so comical, but that was, you know, what was motivating him was a beer. I want a beer. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and but we were all laughing about it because, I mean, Negotiations take hours. This, by the time the tactical team got set up, they were like, okay, we're done. We're done. Oh, yeah, we're done. So, so that was one. And then this one was a lot more typical of how things, uh, how things went. This individual wanted to commit suicide. So he slid his wrists and that didn't work. And for some reason, he thought it was a good idea to turn the gas on in his oven and stick his head in the oven. I don't know why he thought that would work, but it didn't work. So then he calls one of his family members and he says, look, I, I'm, I'm despondent. I'm depressed. I'm going to kill myself and I've got a gun now. Well, the uh, family member called the police. So we get there. We're surrounded. We've surrounded his house and I'm talking to him on the phone. Now, keep in mind, this probably started at eight o'clock at night. It's now about three or four o'clock in the morning. So th- this has been going on. We, you know, we've all been up all night and stuff and we're talking to him. And he, he finally says, you know, I think I'd like to come out. Mm-hmm. Okay. I said, I would love to hear to come out. I said, when you come out, I said, I'll come down to the scene and we'll talk face to face. We were on the phone. And he's like, oh, okay. I said, but when you take the phone with you, but put the gun down, don't hang up the phone. Well, he hung, he hung up the phone, which is not uncommon because we're conditioned that when a call is over, we hang up the phone. But about 15 seconds later, one of the tactical officers comes on the radio and says, we heard a gunshot. Thought, oh my gosh, are you serious? You you shot yourself? He did. He shot himself in the head, but he shot himself at such an angle that the bullet went in at his temple, underneath his skin, went around his scalp, and came out the other side. Never penetrated his scalp. Never got to his brain. But here's a guy three times that wanted to end his life, and three times he was not successful. And you know, we always used to say. You know what? When it's your time, it's your time. But when it's not your time, it doesn't matter what you do. You're, you're still not going to go. So, you know, we put him in an ambulance, sent him to the hospital where he got mental health treatment after he got his, um, you know, his, his wounds taken care of. So the, 
how this works basically is if you think about somebody in crisis, we've all been to the park when we've, we've been on a teeter totter or a seesaw, you know, when we were growing up as kids. And when we start negotiating with somebody, their emotional end is way up in the air and their rational end is down on the ground. Mm -hmm. And over a period of time, and part of the big overarching part of negotiation is trust. We have to build trust with a person that we've never met before. You know, just like a husband and wife or parent or child or a boss or subordinate, we're trying to build a relationship with this person that we don't even know. And so sometimes it takes hours and, and we'll be like over here talking about something with the individual for like two, three hours when the real problem is over here, but yeah. they don't trust us enough to talk about it. So we just ask them open-ended questions and we pretty much ask how and what questions. How, how did this happen? What do you think we can do to solve this? What, things like that. We don't ask why questions. Because why sounds accusatory? You know, mm -hmm. why did you do that? Oh, wait yeah. a minute. Are you accusing me of something? You know, that kind of thing. So we ask them these how and what questions. We get them to talk. The more they talk, the more they burn off a lot of that emotional energy. So that teeter-totter kind of gets to equilibrium. And then as we talk more, the hopefully the rational brain, the rational side is now up in the air and the emotional side is down on the ground. Because if I'm trying to ask you to come out and you're emotional and you're yelling and screaming and stuff like that, you, that's total, it's just a total waste of time and energy mm -hmm. on all of our parts. So we wait till that rational side is up on the ground because we all make better decisions for ourselves when we use our rational yeah. brain versus our emotional brain. So we use those how and what questions and then we parrot back what they say or mirror what they say to us and we attach an emotion to it. And here's where the trust is built. Because if, you know, Tom, if you're, you know, yelling and screaming and ranting and raving, and I, I say, you know, I, I parrot back or mirror back to you what you said to me, but I say, oh, Tom, you seem a little upset. I've mm -hmm. totally missed what yeah. you're trying to convey to me. And yeah. that's why negotiating was so exhausting because you had to get down in the weeds. You had to get down in the mud with these people and kind of mirror their emotions. It's like, Man, you know, you're really pissed off at your wife or your mother, or, you know, whatever the reason is that we're here. And yeah, yeah, I really am. Okay, now we're starting to build a rapport. We're starting mm -hmm. to build a trust. The other thing I'll say about this is we used silence to our advantage. Yeah. So, you know, somebody would talk and then they would stop talking. And, and we don't like silence as yeah. human beings. We like to fill that. And, and that was one of my biggest issues when I first started with the negotiator was to just let that silence sit there. Yeah. Because if I didn't say anything, eventually the person would get uncomfortable and they would start talking again. And that's exactly what we wanted them to do. So in, in a long narrative, that's kind of a little bit about hostage negotiation. You know, it's really satisfying to also not just hear you talk about this, and I could, I could literally just listen to you all day. You should record an audiobook, um, but also to see that the techniques that you were learning are the same ones that I was taught in my counselling classes in psychology, and I'm really glad that at least over there in in America, you've got the psychology and you've got the. Um, uh, beg your pardon, you got the negotiators hand in hand. So that makes me really, really happy.
Yeah, we, I mean, we did, you know, like I said, we worked with the psychologist. We we trained with each other. Some of these people had been on a lot longer than I had. And yeah. Yeah, I'll give you another quick story. We, we were negotiating with a 15-year-old kid who had barricaded himself in a house. He was wanted for a homicide, and he had a gun. And we had done everything we possibly could think of, with all our tactics and everything like that, and the kid would not come out. And so mm-hmm. we sort of called a timeout. We're like, look. Hey, can we take a break for a minute and we'll call you right back? And he was like, yeah, sure. You know, hang up. So we get together as a group and we're like, I I don't know. What what do you guys think? And we're we're talking, we're batting things back and forth with each other. And then somebody says, wait a minute. He's a kid. He's 15 years old. Let's let's act like a parent. Let's scare him. And so we had the tactical team break a window and throw in a, a, a flashbang device that basically, you know, it, when it goes off, it makes a really bright light and a really loud sound. And it doesn't hurt anything. It doesn't, you know, I mean, anything like that. It just scares people. And so we're like, yeah, what the heck? Why not? We tried everything else. Let's try that. So they did. They break the window. They throw in a flashbang. Boom. Within 10 minutes, this kid was out. You know, yeah. so it, sometimes you've just got to sort of get together and, and sort of throw the book out. It's like, okay, this isn't working. What else can we use to get this kid out safely? And that was something we came up with. So, you know, there's a lot of, like I said, back and forth with each other. Have you thought about this? Did you try that? Not to be, you know, like you're not any good at this, but how am I going to make you better? If you're better, then I'm better and the team's better. Yeah. I think also perhaps a theme that I've noticed in this is what you became really, really good at is giving people a way out of a no way out situation. Yeah. And, and, and even taking that a step further and engaging them to help us develop that way out, you know, yeah. where they're like, you know, okay, I, I've done something really bad. Now I'm barricaded. Now the police have surrounded me. I, I mean, I have no way out. How am I going to get out of this? And, and, and going back to using those how and what questions they didn't even realize that that's what we were doing. We were trying to engage them to help us get them out safely. And, yeah. and like I said, about 10% of the time or 90% of the time, we were successful in doing that. But about 10% of the time, the people, you know, if you were a homicide suspect and you knew you did it, and you knew they had the evidence and you were going to prison for the rest of your life, or if you were on probation, you know, and, and you knew that when we caught you, you were going back to prison for 40 years or something like that. People were like, you know what? No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to end it right here. And while I, I never lost any sleep over that, and I, I don't mean to sound callous or anything like that, but I knew I did the very best I could to get you out. I had great training. I worked with great people. But at the end of the day, it was really your decision how this was going to end. And if you choose, if you chose to you know, put a bullet in your head and and end this, that was your decision. I knew I did everything I could to make that not happen and get you out safely. Because bottom line, I don't care how bad of a person you are, there's somewhere, somebody somewhere loves you and wants you to get out safely. But again, at the end of the day, it's your decision how this ends. Yeah. I'm going to pick up on that that line you you said there, doing the best that you, you could. Obviously, this was a very mentally taxing role, I can imagine. Was that one of the things that you used to manage like the demands and the stress and the emotions that came with that role? Yeah, I mean, you know, cops are 
a lot more susceptible to divorce, to suicide, to alcohol and drug dependency and stuff like that. And, you know, there was always the, because regardless of how long it took us, regardless of how long we were on the scene, whenever it was over, the, the tactical team and the negotiators got back together and we, we debriefed what went right, yeah. what went wrong, what could we have done better? You know, how could we do this differently the next time? Cause there's always going to be a next time. Yeah. And, you know, people afterwards were like, Hey, let's go, let's go get a drink. Let's go. And for me, it was, you know, what, what was my rock? What was my foundation? What was my anchor? And it was always my family. It was like, no, I'm, I'm not sorry, guys. I mean, I love you guys to death. I'd lay down my life for you, but I'm not going to the bar with you. you know, I'm going yeah. home to be with my family because my family grounded. My family yeah. allowed me the ability to kind of rejuvenate. And, and I would tell my wife some things, but I didn't tell her everything. And I certainly didn't tell her little, little daughter anything. But yeah. they were the things that, you know what? You're my anchor and you make me stronger. And this was a terrible night. Somebody didn't come home tonight. You know, somebody died tonight. And I'm going to go home and be with you, rejuvenate, recharge the batteries, and then get at it once again when, you know, we get another call. Yeah. And um, I love every time you do speak about her, you you do light up. Um, I think 30 years now you've you've been together? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant. I, I absolutely love that. Um, let's move on now to probably one of the other biggest events that's happened in your life. Um, I understand in 2012, your life changed dramatically. Uh, you develop a rare form of cancer. What can you tell me about that? Yeah. At the time I was a girls high school basketball coach in the state of Texas and I had a callus break open on the bottom of my foot, you know, and, and initially, I didn't think much of it because as a coach, you're on your feet a lot. But after a few weeks of it not healing, I made an appointment and went to see a podiatrist, a foot doctor friend of mine. Mm-hmm. And he took an x-ray and he said, Terry, I think you have a cyst in there and I can cut it out. And he yeah. did. And he, he showed it to me, a little gelatin sack with some white fat in it, no dark spots, no blood, nothing that gave either one of us concern. But he sent it off to pathology to have it looked at. And then two weeks later, I received a call from him. And as I mentioned, he was a friend of mine. And the more difficulty he was having explaining what was going on, the more frightened I was becoming. Until finally, he just laid it out for me. He said, Terry, I've been a doctor for 25 years. I have never seen this form of cancer. You have an incredibly rare form of melanoma. Most people think of melanoma as too much exposure to the sun, and it affects the melon, the pigment in our skin. But this is a, a rare form that appears on the bottom of the feet or the palms of the hands. It has nothing to do with sun exposure. And then he recommended I go to a particular cancer hospital and be treated. And so I did. I had the, the bottom of my foot excised. I had all the lymph nodes in my groin removed. And at the time, melanoma was pretty much a death sentence. They, they didn't yeah. really have anything they could do for it. So my doctor put me on a weekly injection of a drug called interferon to help keep the disease from coming back. The side effects of the interferon were that it gave me severe flu-like symptoms for two to three days every week after each injection. And I took those weekly injections for almost five years. So imagine having the flu every week for five years. And and like I said, that wasn't a cure. That was, you know, we're trying to kick the can down the road and buy you some more time. Five years of interferon became so toxic to my body in 2017 
that I ended up in the intensive care unit with a body temperature of 108 degrees, which is usually not compatible with being alive. Somehow I survived that. So I had to stop the interferon and the cancer came back almost immediately in the exact same spot where it presented on my foot. That necessitated in 2018, the amputation of my left foot. Cancer worked its way up my leg. 2019, two more surgeries. And then in 2020, an undiagnosed tumor kind of in my ankle area grew large enough that it fractured my tibia, my shin bone. And my only recourse in the middle of the pandemic was to have my left leg amputated above the knee. And I also found out I had these tumors in my lungs, which I'm still being treated for. And I know that sounds like a really dark and ugly journey, and it certainly has been. Yeah. But I'll tell you two things to end this. One, I don't think you really know yourself until you've been tested by some form of adversity in your life. And secondly, I honestly believe cancer has made me a better human being. Because you've not given up, have you? You have every single right, if you wanted to, you could be completely angry at the world. But you, you, you've not. You've got this sense of optimism, this sense of hope that's just radiating through the 3,000, 4,000 miles away, however many, many miles away we are, as we established, my sense of geography is horrendous. So what, what do you use to maintain that sense? I look back at my life, there's a lot of things that have helped me. I, I think, first of all, I, you know, I started playing basketball when I was nine years old and got a scholarship to play in college, played all the way up till I graduated from college when I was 21. And I think what team sports taught me, and for me, it was team sports. I think whatever team you're on, you know, whether you're playing a band or, you know, it's your colleagues at work or even your family, what team sports has taught me is the importance of being part of something that's bigger than yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, you realize on a team that if you don't do your job, not only do you let yourself down, but you let your teammates down, your coaches down, your fans down, et cetera. And if you think about it, the biggest team game that we all play is this game of life. So that, that's been one thing that's helped me. The other thing that I talk about, I, I talk about several things, my four truths. I also talk about my three Fs. And the three Fs are faith, family, and friends. You know, and I, I go back when we were talking earlier about, you know, blaming things, you know, blaming people for our lack of success or happiness. And when people found out I had a faith life and I got cancer, like, well, you must blame God. And I used to joke with them. I'm like, no, I don't think God got up on a Tuesday morning, checked his to-do <laughs> list and said, hey, Terry Tucker, cancer today. I, I don't believe that at all. But during those five years that I was on interferon, I was so sick of being sick that I, I honestly prayed to die. It was like, you know, mm -hmm. there's a difference between living and not dying. And I felt I was really kind of in that not dying phase. I'm really not contributing anything. I'm not you know, I'm just, I'm just not dying. And so I was like, okay, God, look, this is, this isn't living. Get, get, take me out of here. Get, you know, take me home, get me out of here and stuff like that. But he didn't, but he gave me the strength, you know, to go on. And then, you know, obviously my, I've talked about my family and, and my friends as well. Those are the things that anchor me and that have gotten me through these last 10 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like that leads nicely to the question, what, what advice would you give to somebody who maybe has just received a some kind of diagnosis? I, I tell them several things. One, you're a whole lot stronger than you think you are. You know, mm -hmm. I, I mean, I don't want to sit here and, and make your audience think that, you know, 
there, there's some big S on my chest and I'm flying around with a cape and magical powers. I, I, I'm a human being. I have bad days when I go for treatment and I go for treatment every three weeks for an entire week at the hospital. You know, I get down. I get depressed. I feel yeah. sorry for myself. And while I think everybody has a breaking point, I think that breaking point, and it doesn't have to be disease. It could be, you know, you're starting a business and I don't know if I can do that breaking point is so much further down the road than we ever thought it, it could possibly be. And I recall a, a study that I read about back in the 1950s by a professor at Johns Hopkins University here in the United States who did a very simple experiment with rats. He took rats and he put them in a tank of water that was over their head. And he wanted to see how long the average rat could tread water. And the average rat treaded water for about 15 minutes. And just as those rats were getting ready to sink and drown, he reached in, grabbed them, pulled them out, dried them off, and let them rest. And then he put the exact same rats back in that exact same tank of water. The second time around, those rats treaded water on average for 60 hours. Yeah. Now think about that. First time, 15 minutes. I'm just not going to fail. I'm going to die. I'm going to drown. Yeah. The second time, 60 hours, which said to me two things. Number one, the importance of hope in our lives. We have to believe, maybe not today, maybe not next month, maybe not even next year. At some point in time, our life will get better. And yeah. The second thing it's taught me is just how much more our physical bodies can handle than we ever thought that they could. Yeah, yeah. Um, I swear I could talk to you all day and just listen to everything that you've done. We haven't even got to the whole point of this, which was to talk about your books. Uh, <laughs> so let's let's see if we can squeeze them in in the last few minutes before we go to our questionnaire. Uh, introduce uh, your books to us and where I can find the books. Yeah, the, the book is called Sustainable Excellence, The Ten Principles to Leading Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life. It's available anywhere you can get a book online, Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, Apple iBooks. Um, you can go to my my site, motivationalcheck.com. You can get access to the book there as well. So pretty much anywhere you get a book online, you can get sustainable excellence. Yeah. Apologies, we couldn't deep dive into the book. No, that's fine. Um, right now, my apologies. But I think this was just, uh, thank you so much for your time with this. Um, so you mentioned your website there, Sustainable Excellence. Um, where else could I find you online? Uh, I have a, a blog called motivationalcheck.com. We talked about that earlier. I, mm -hmm. I put up a thought for the day every day. With that thought comes a question about how maybe you can apply that in life. I have recommendations for books to read. Uh, videos to watch, my social media links are on there. And you can also leave me a message there if you if you if you want. And and I respond to everybody who reaches out to mm -hmm. me. I'm glad you also reached out to me as well. And um, I'm really glad we made we made this connection. Oh, I'm getting a little me bit too. emotional now. Um, <laughs> so we end every interview with the questionnaire. And these questions come from the Prost questionnaire, which were then later adapted by Bernard Pivo and later by my hero. James Lipton, and now I present my um, I kick ass at life adaptation to you. What is your favorite word? Love. What is your least favorite word? Hate. They feel like guiding things for you. You always seem to go towards love, don't you? It's. Um, I, I think it's it's the most important word in any language. I mean, whether we we love ourselves, we love our creator, we love our fellow man, we love what we do for a living, whatever. It, you know, it, it's such a powerful word, but it's especially with guys, 
it's not a word that you we talk a lot about. You yeah. know, it's a you know, and I'm not talking about romantic kind of love. I'm talking about that that deep commitment that you have in your heart, that you have in your soul. You know, for yourself, for other people, for your creator, for what you do with your life. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, what engages you? Things that people say I can't do. My my wife and I were talking about this just a couple of weeks ago. She said, you know, when you first got cancer, you know, the, the oncologist pulled me out of the room and said, you realize that he's probably not going to live another five years. And my wife tells the story. She said, I just kind of laughed at the oncologist. It's like, oh, you have no idea who you're dealing with. You know, mm-hmm. so it was like, tell me I can't do something and I'll find a way. I'll figure out a way to do it. So, you know, th- that kind of there's no way you can do this. Yeah, just stand back and watch me. I'll take care of this. Yeah. What disengages you? Um, drama. You know, mm-hmm. people that, you know, it's all about them. It, it's, you know, I, I may not come across this way, but I, you know, I, I think two of the biggest words that any of us can have in our life, and, and they're not just words, they're, they're traits, are character and humility. Uh, you know, I, I read a book called Legacy. And it's, it's about the New Zealand national rugby team. And by all accounts, some of the most, probably the most successful sports franchise in any sport in any country of all times. And when they're looking to bring on a new player to their team, you know, you would think obviously they're going to look for, for technical competency. Are you good at yeah. rugby? And I don't know anything about rugby, so we're not even going there. And, and, and the, but what they look for are character. What kind of person are you? You know, do you go home and kick the dog when there's a loss or can you use that loss to learn from and us get better? And then the last thing is, is, is humility. And I think back on my own career and how many job interviews I went to where I was, I was anxious. I was nervous. It was be like, boy, I better have answers to all these questions or I don't stand a prayer's chance to get in this job. And what, what the, the, the team is called the all blacks because their uniforms are all black, but they're, what they say is, we don't expect you as an individual to have all the answers, but us collectively, us as a team will come together and figure out the answer. So somebody who comes in, you know, to interview and be like, you know, yeah, I can tell you everything you need to do and I got all the answers. Yeah. You're not going to get on that team. It's more like you need to be humble and say, look, here's my thoughts, but I don't know if I've got everything that you want in that answer. Uh, what sound or noise do you love? Uh, rain on the roof at night when I'm trying to go to sleep. I, I love that. I, my wife and I live in Colorado. It doesn't rain here very much. It snows a lot, but I, I don't get that. I don't get that very often, and, and I just love that sound. Talking talk of the snow, we had a lot of snow last week, and the entire UK grounded to a halt yeah. because we can't deal with one inch of snow <laughs> at all. Um, what sound or noise do you hate? Traffic. You know. Mm horns and cars and trucks and all. I, I don't, I, I like quiet. I like calm because I think that's where, that's the time, that's the place where that little whisper voice of God, of our soul can make contact with us. You know, when we're mm. going a million miles an hour, we're distracting ourselves and everything's going on. E- even if God wanted to get in touch with us, how could he possibly get through all of that? Yeah. Question seven is everyone's favorite and mine too. What is your favorite curse word? You know, I I try not to cuss because I figure if, if I need to say something that requires a cuss word, then I probably don't need to say it. Um, so I, I'm going to leave that as my answer. 
Okay. All right. All right. I'll let you off for that one. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, question eight. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I'd like to be a teacher. I'd mm-hmm. like to try to, you know, I, I think I did that as a, as a basketball coach in some form, but, you know, to be able to help people become more than they ever thought they could be would, would be something I think would just be an amazing. I mean, I, I was talking to my brothers about, I, I mean, I'm 62 years old, my, our kindergarten teacher, you know, that was back in 1965. I still remember her. You know, I still yeah. remember the house she lived in just because she had a tremendous impact on me as a five-year-old. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, totally. I think we can all think of that teacher that sort of had that positive impact and that positive effect. For me, it was Mrs. Burton uh, in English. What profession would you not like to do? Um, I, I, don't, I don't know if I would enjoy sales that much. And, and, and you know, I, 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 don't, I don't like, or maybe, maybe this would be bad. I, I, don't, I don't know if I'd be very good at philanthropy, you know, of asking mm-hmm. people for money and things like that. I, I think that would be, be a little difficult for me to do. I, I think we work very hard for the things that we have and to ask you. I mean, I really have to believe in what I was asking money for, whether it was a school or, you know, a charity or something like that. So I, I would have probably a hard time doing that. Mm-hmm. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, that's a common answer as well. Lots of people are seeing sales and just going, no, don't want don't to be in that world. Yeah. Final question. If you could say only one statement to any one person, what would that statement be and who would that person be? I guess, I guess what I would, I, I, would, I would ask God, what, what do you want me to do? How can I make your world, how can I make your your community, your, your universe, a better place. Point me in the right direction, show me what to do, and I'll do anything I can to make that happen. Brilliant. Um, Terry, thank you so, so much. Uh, just remind me, where can we find you online? Yeah, motivationalcheck.com will get you to me. Uh, Terry, once again, thank you so, so much for your time today. I, it's, this has been quite an emotional episode for me i think well tom thanks for having me on you know i I always say it's good people like you that allow me to come on and have a conversation with them and if that conversation makes a positive difference in somebody's life then today's been a good day hi everyone this is jj the co-founder of good pods if you haven't heard of it yet good pods is like goodreads or instagram but for podcasts it's new it's social it's different and it's growing really fast There are more than 2 million podcasts, and we know that it is impossible to figure out what to listen to. On Good Pods, you follow your friends and podcasters to see what they like. That is the number one way to discover new shows and episodes. You can find Good Pods on the web or download the app. Happy listening.